0: David Levine is the author of the Frank Bear novels, which include City of the Sun and Where the Dead Lay. With Brian Koppelman, he co-directed the movie Solitary Man. They co-wrote Rounders, Ocean's 13, and The Girlfriend Experience. His new Frank Bear novel is the $13 million pop. Thank you for joining me, David. Thanks, glad to be here. David, one of the things I love about these books is the language, and this hit me practically in the first sentence of this book, where Frank Baer is um, walking through a garage with somebody and refers to that person as the principal. And right away we know we're right in the perceptions
1: of, <laughs> of a professional. Well, well, you know right away that you're with somebody doing executive protection because they call the client the principal, or you might think that you're in a junior high school. I'm not sure. <laughs> and actually I wondered about that for a minute, you know, but I figured there would be enough uh, – People would be either coming to the third book or the cover would probably tell them something about it, and they wouldn't think that, um, you know, my hulking detective was walking along with uh, a guy who was giving out detention. <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> not really. Now, uh, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about the creation of Frank Bear, because he's such an interesting character, and he has a really troubled life behind him. So how did this, how did you, as, as David, first meet this character? What were you doing at the time? Well...
1: That's an interesting question. You know, the way that that he came about was I'd had many, many years ago I had the idea for the beginning of City of the Sun in which um, a young kid was abducted and his parents were obviously devastated by that. They didn't know where to turn. And the father was a guy who was a real decent, upstanding guy and he couldn't let it go. He needed to find some answers about what happened to his kid. Um, but ultimately, he was completely unprepared to go out onto the streets and find this kind of information out. And I knew that it was going to take place in a Midwestern town or city, like a bucolic area where these kinds of things aren't supposed to happen, and it was going to be kind of shocking. And that I had about that much in my head for, for years, for like three years or five years, and it was just... I was stopped at that point, and I was like, well, where is this story going to go? And then suddenly, this guy... this this hulking former cop sort of like walked into the scene. And I was like, okay, a dead end guy, the sort of court of last resort for desperate people lives in this city and the father finds him somehow. And against sort of almost against his will, he gets enlisted in this case. And I sort of said to myself, okay, why does this case have huge resonance to this guy? What's what's his problem? And I realized that in his past, he had you know, a, a super traumatic incident um, involving the death of his own son. And once those pieces came together, I was like, okay, this guy is going to help on the case. He's he's totally prepared for the world that he's going to go into. And then I had the idea that the father was going to sort of demand his way on at some point, and a relationship was going to develop between these two guys. And that sort of opened the channels, and I started writing in earnest then. Um, and And one of the other inspirations for the character is definitely um, my, my stepfather, this, this guy who's been married to my mom for, for many, many years now. Um, his name's Dale Wunderlich, but he hails from the Pacific Northwest. He's an older guy now, but he happens to be a huge, towering guy, he's, he's over six foot six tall. And when he was younger, he was very burly. He was a criminology major and went on the LAPD, and then he became a Secret Service agent which is not part of Frank Baer's resume, but, uh, and then uh, this guy went on to book, be a private investigator for, for years and years, and he still does it. And just having the exposure to Dale and talking about the life of a private investigator and just um, imagining some of the sort of cases and adventures he was on, definitely filtered into the creation of Frank Baer.
0: Oh that makes perfect sense because Frank Bear just feels so authentic and there's a kind of uh solidity at the core of this character and it makes the revelations that we get through the novels really really uh you know powerful and interesting. Now uh one of the things that I really like about this book is that these books all of them is that you do have these great relationships within the books there are kind of characters who may or may, you, as a reader, you think, well, I don't know if this character is going to be with us for the series of books, but he's really strong. So talk about making um, subsidiary characters beyond Frank Bear, who are, you know, give Frank a run for his money in terms of the strength of the character. You are talking about the villains and the people
1: he bumps <laughs> up against? Or are you talking about the sort of um, friends and allies that Both. may shift in his world? I mean, you know, for me... The idea was <clears throat> I, I, I sort of grew up reading crime fiction and spy fiction and seeing movies that had detectives and cops and you know, action movies I really loved when I was a kid. Um, and you know, the big explosions and the big machine gun fights where the hero walks away unscathed, they're really fun, and you know they can be totally satisfying experiences. but for me, I was more interested in exploring some of the costs of the violence on the participants, even the guy who walks away, the apparent survivor or winner. Um, you know, there's a residue and it's not that easy and living a life immersed in that definitely has, um, there's just a cost to pay. And, and uh, you know, in order to have a main character that's living up to his potential and being as great as he can be, you need to surround him with characters that are really difficult opponents, um, interesting foils, friends that have a lot to say, people who he has relationships with that fall apart. I just felt that, you know, part of my job is to try to give a 360 rendering of everybody in the books, even if they're in there briefly and even if they're not going to come
0: back in a a future book. Now, uh, your third book... uh Finds a uh, Frank Bear working as a as a corporate detective for for uh, Caro uh, Caro Associates. Yeah, the Caro Group. Yeah, the Caro Group. So, uh, and this is a really a time honored tradition within the 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 private eye genre. You know, it from it goes back to the Continental Ops. Right. <laughs> so, talk about you know the 21st century version of that, which is rather different.
1: Well, there is, you know, there is a Sector of the private investigation world. There's there's obviously the one where it's a, a broken down guy sitting in an office with a bunch of phone books. Even though it's the modern age, hoping somebody's going to stumble in and ask him to go, you know, find out if the husband or wife is cheating. Um, but there's also a layer in the business of very high end firms that charge almost lawyers' rates per hour, and generally go about doing sophisticated stuff. They Often do um, they do background checks on companies that are going to be purchased, and and sometimes get hired by private equity groups or hedge funds. And there's a lot of due diligence and computer research and stuff like that going on. Um, and you know, Bear gets into contact with this organization in the in the second book when a couple of these well-washed detectives go missing, and and again you know, they sort of aren't up for the challenge of how gritty it's going to get, and Bear has to step in. And he's sort of um, presented with an opportunity to join them in that book. But he's not much of a joiner, and he doesn't really play well with others. And he certainly doesn't do well at this point um, taking orders from other people. But we find him at the beginning of this book with a girlfriend who's very, very pregnant, and he's trying... um, He's trying to sort of transcend himself and to be a provider and be responsible and make a living. And that's what he's doing for for the several months before the book starts until an incident happens that forces him to look into it even though he's told not to. And ultimately, Bear is a guy who does have some self-sabotaging qualities and he's just not able to. He's got an inner code that he can't turn off. And even though they tell him to just go along and get along, he can't. So.
0: In that way, he's he he gets hired by the by the cubicle farm, but never ultimately is adapts to it. Yeah,
1: he's 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 not cut out for it. And even from the beginning, he suspects that they want him to do the dirty work, and it's it's sort of bearing out. But then, when you've got a guy who's really qualified to do the dirty work, you can't just turn him on and off. I mean, sometimes he's just going to go and do what he knows how to do, and that's what they didn't bank on and and you know his future there is limited but he he has to do what, what
0: he thinks is right that's one of the, i think the one of the things these books all bring about and i think you do a fantastic job of this on the characterization side on the prose side and on the plotting side is to present all of your characters with moral dilemmas and and real problems that are not do not have an easy solution there's a a couple of Uh, business partners in here part way through and there is no really easy solution for them you know you often read books where you know they can there's some kind of act of violence or some kind of thing they can do and these guys have they got nothing and and, uh, Frank Bear also finds himself in these kind of moral dilemmas where you know he's not he doesn't have a, a clear path and I'd like you to as a writer talk about inhabiting those characters with these moral dilemmas, do you find yourself, you know, in in moral straits, or or do you find <laughs> well, that a lot of my work is in Hollywood, so <laughs> you know, I'm constantly in moral straits and in, in the gray
1: area. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, the, the something that interests me, and and it goes to what we were talking about earlier about these characters that are fully rounded, or you know, that I hope are. I, I try to invest them all with with ambitions, goals. Uh, disappointments, loves, failures, and then areas in their lives that they can't control so that when they get pushed into sort of like their red zone, they act in ways that are going to bring them into conflict with others. So, you know, that's bare to some degree, but that's the bad guys too. You know, a lot of these guys have found a way to rationalize what they do. And, you know, some of them are greed driven, some of them are amoral and, and they don't consider what they're doing wrong. They just consider it the way that they make their money. Some of them sort of um, go past the, the breaking point and start to succumb to like the sadistic elements or can't sort of turn off the switch. Sometimes revenge and pride gets into it. I just, you know, I try to look at like the motivations that, that work on everybody on whatever level and then just put them on their feet in a, in a criminal setting.
0: You know, one of the things that's so interesting about your books, I think, you know, you're really breaking out in a new kind of uh, area of crime, which is Midwestern noir, which <laughs> is, sounds almost silly when you say it. But it really, it's very, very powerful uh, place to set these uh, um kind of stories because the towns in the Midwest are convincingly portrayed as kind of like real nowhere to go nowhere to be you know where people kind of wash up on the shore and there's just look around and go well this is where I'm spending the rest of my life (laughs) well you
1: know when I started with the book like I I was the the first book I was I wanted the crime to take place in a bucolic setting and I knew that um you know if I said it in New York or Chicago or LA or Even Detroit, that, uh, you know, there's a level of expectation that these bad things happen there that wasn't going to work for me. And I also thought that, you know, if you look at it as a writer, those places are very fished out. I mean, the classic detectives and and cops and stuff like that in the history of literature and movies are are in all those places. Um, So I like the idea that it was like an area that wasn't really too plumbed and and also um you know so it'd be a discovery for some people and also unexpected you know the the one intelligent thing i did was at least put it in indianapolis where there'd be an expectation of a second crime happening you know <laughs> i didn't intend for it to be a series when i was writing the first one but at least i left myself that out because indianapolis is a big city and on the surface it's very middle class and americana and has great public works and it's very sports driven and all those things but around the edges, there is a lot of poverty there's a high murder rate, there's a drug card are going through there there's gang violence there's a lot of stuff going on and you know, as I over the years have spent my time in my semi fictional Indianapolis, I do things like read the the indie papers online and stuff like that, and I track the kinds of crimes that's that's how I learned about the pea shake houses, that feature in the second book. Oh, that's which so is, great. What a, Yeah, it's about. a fascinating thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's um, it's a form of illegal gambling. It's sort of like a lottery system that, that people set up in these private houses, and they play. And it's, it's sort of like a numbers racket, like in the old days used to take place in the inner cities. Um, and at various times when they want press, the police will go bust one of these places. And it's, it's a bit of a victimless crime, so... Um, you know, everybody knows it's a bit of a PR stunt when you when you bust a pea shake house. But a lot of people also complain that, like, there's loud noise, there's a lot of cars parked, there's drugs, there's guns. All the things that surround illegal gambling sometimes happen at pea shake houses. So um, I was reading about the history of this stuff and talking to some police sources that I have in Indy, and they were telling me about it. And I thought, all right, well, what if uh, a, an organized crime family, but not organized like the mafia, just... Um, a family whose family business was crime decided to sort of try to bootstrap up and become aristocratic in crime by curbing all of the pea-shake business. It's multi-multi-millions, and if you could really find a way to control it through, through extortion and threats and violence, you could become very rich. And that's, that's where the, the second book, you know, part of the idea came from for the second book. Um,
0: Phenomenal characters, who That family was
1: to die for. They were great. You know, it was fascinating to me. um, I wrote the family, the Schlegel family. They have these sons and they're all criminal and even the mother is pretty dangerous and unsavory and the father's like a real bad guy. Um, But you know, they love the kids and they love each other and they're a real family in that way. So that was interesting to me. And then um, a source that I know in Indianapolis, like when I I was either done with the book or the book had come out sent me an article about a family, an ex- a big family of, of cousins and everything, an extended family that had over 50 um, felony arrests and convictions amongst them. And they had, like, the family tree of mugshots and stuff. And I was like, wow, I stumbled into some real truth here. Well, that's what happens
0: when you write to the truth. Yeah. Now, uh, in, in your latest book, you have at the center of it is uh, what are called racinos. Yes. And, and I love this idea of way kind of gambling infects and is like a uh, mycelium of the of the fungus that spreads out underneath <laughs> through society and gives a nice corridor where all sorts of crime can get ga- can you know gather around the edges
1: well yeah I'm fascinated by gambling um, you know along with Brian Koppelman I wrote the screenplay to the movie rounders mm-hmm. about poker players when when playing poker in this country was a completely underground thing um, you could play in casino card rooms in in Atlantic City and Las Vegas, but really, um, there were tons of underground clubs in New York. And then,
0: did you visit those clubs before you? Oh would? yeah,
1: all the time. I was playing every night for a year. Really yeah, researching it. Yeah, <laughs> research, research yeah, in quotes. <laughs> um, gave them a lot of money at first, those players, and then ended up taking plenty back. You know, because that's the learning curve. So but
0: you got you actually got good at it.
1: <clears throat> I got I got good enough. I didn't have much money, so I didn't mm-hmm. play high stakes. But you know. I I got to know how to play. Now the game has moved on and it's changed, and so many people have studied and and take a real mathematical approach. I'd probably be terrible again now, sitting down with with like a new crop of young players. But uh, y- you know, I'm just so fascinated by the idea of gambling being legalized in various states, and the amount of money that it brings in brings a huge amount of pressure to a situation. Where politics and legislation and something that's fairly unsavory meet, and again, you know through through reading about what was going on in Indianapolis over the last few years, it seemed that a couple of these big racinos had opened these racetrack casinos, they had agreed to pay pretty weighty um, taxes, well you know like licensing fees that were the equivalent of taxes um, all of the of the citizens in the state freaked out because they thought they were getting such a sweetheart deal and they thought that these people were just paying a pittance and and now they were able to rake in money then the recession hit a couple of years ago and suddenly the casino owners started crying poor saying well we can't pay these rates and then all of the population was going no no no! you made the deal you've got to stick to it they were gambling yeah <laughs> so, so you know suddenly like the is flipping up and down and i thought you know, you get into this, and if you're not an expert and if you don't have resources to see see yourself through a tough time, you know, suddenly the pressure gets high. When, and, you know, these guys calculate how much they're going to take in on every video poker and slot machine. And if instead of $300 a day, it's $100 a day, they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, and they're going to go under, and they have loans, and there's no money in the economy, and no gambling money's walking in. It becomes a big disaster. And, you know, I started thinking about a few of these guys who, if they were not very moral and realized they had a lot to lose, what would they do to try to turn it around for themselves? And well, that's where that plot came from.
0: Well, one of the things I really like about all, all of your books is the way you kind of work in business considerations and you architect um Profit and loss schemes really well, (laughs) even whether they're legal, illegal, on on the gray area, back and forth. And I think that's a really interesting way of plotting a book. And I'm wondering, when you start writing your books, do you, like, have the whole – um, business cash flow already mapped in your mind or is it something that you kind of intuit and uh, whip out as you uh- Yeah, it, I mean
1: it's more intuitive I don't, I don't map out the cash flow like at some point I establish the numbers and, and what they would mean and when certain things would happen um, but in the beginning it's more just a notion you know what if somebody who took huge loans because they thought they were going to make X suddenly wasn't making close to X like what would they do To keep their life going, and in the first couple of books, even though um, there was some really hardcore violence associated with the crimes involved, the motivations for for the most part that set it off was it was greed. Mm -hmm. Because there's a few motivations. I mean, you know, there's there's pure bloodlust, there's there's revenge, there's there's various motivations, but greed is definitely one of them. And I'm fascinated by white-collar greed looking for, looking for um, the ability to hire violent, violent offenders to do their bidding. Like that to me is a, a fascinating intersection. And, you know, I'm working on the next book now, and, and it's yeah. going to be a very different motivation. It's not going to be, it's not gonna be um, greed at all on the part of the bad guy. But, um, you know, in the case of, of these... Um, in the case of, of this last book, it definitely started that way, and then people's sort of sense of pride and desire to win and survive starts to come to the fore, and that's really how it plays out. So it's just a motivator.
0: Now, one of the things I really like it too is that uh, Frank Bear's personal life is is gritty and real, and, and well integrated into the stories, all of them. So I as a as a writer, you know, how much of Frank Bear is in you and and how much of you, you know, how much is he a creation of you or how much how often does he get away from you?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, he's definitely a creation. I'm not living a life at all like his, you know. I'm very happily married. I have been for almost 15 years now. I have three kids. We all live in the same house. You know, I don't do anything violent, really. Um you know, he's but but everybody has certain motivations. I mean, everybody has an, an antisocial impulse or the impulse to tell somebody who's hassling them to shut the F up or else you're gonna do something. Frank Bear's just a guy who's able to act on that stuff and does, because he just doesn't have as much of a, a limiter on him as as regular people. Um but, you know, he's a guy who in the beginning, like before the series started, was doing everything right and it was all pretty much working. And then certain circumstances landed on him and his reaction to those circumstances wasn't perhaps the most positive. And now he's he finds himself here and he's trying to go back to a, a place where there's more harmony and more stability, but it's not that easy for him. It's just his
0: daily struggle basically. You know, one of the things that makes him such a convincing character is uh, are the details of his, daily exercise routine and the kind of <laughs> his physicality. And I'm wondering how much research, do, are you running around with a 15 pound or 60 pound ball up and down? Well, yeah, I mean, times? you know,
1: I'm <laughs> into that kind of stuff. I've, I've done martial arts for a long time. Mm-hmm. I used to. Um, really? I used to uh, do, do kickboxing and karate. Then I did boxing for a while. Now I'm getting kind of old, so I switched to, to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu which I think is part of why that featured so heavily in the second book, because I was pretty fascinated by it. Um, and in order to do those things, especially when you're just like an aging desk jockey like myself, you have to do a lot of physical training. So I'm always interested in super intense workouts. I just make what Frank Baer does you know, 10 times harder than what I do, and he just does it with like a lot more weight, so.
0: Now, uh, you create a number of just really wonderful characters in your latest book. And I'm hoping that we're going to see some of them again. In and <laughs> <laughs> in, in particularly Wadi Dwyer. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. I, you know, I, I, I don't um, – I've never written one of these books and left somebody's outcome set up so that I know exactly what's going to happen with them. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the end of a crime book – If a character dies, then you understand that he's not coming back in the next book unless you're going to do some kind of a flashback. And if a character lives, then you know there's always the chance that um, somewhere down the road, the paths are going to cross again. And to me, that's an interesting place to occasionally leave off. First of all, I don't want to write books where the ending is very pat, where Mm -hmm. all the bad guys fall down with a bullet in them and the hero walks away and, and that's it um that's doesn't represent any version of reality to me so i think you know sometimes arrests sometimes death and sometimes getaways all happen to take place and it's you know at the right moment some of these guys could occasionally come back with the reason it goes for it goes for the friends of you know friends of bears too not just the bad guys
0: well i really like the way the uh um, just the the way you pace the plot too, and and I want to talk you, to you about this because there's all sorts of really great plot pacing uh, things we see in here. One of them is the way you, as we're going along, the way you introduce characters, right? and that's a really nice kind of driver of plot.
1: Yeah, you know, thank you. Um, I I think that. I I think that maybe some of my filmmaking experience comes comes along mm-hmm. with that um when you're writing or directing or editing a scene there's an old saw that says like come in come into a scene late and leave early because it leaves more on the table you don't you know sure if somebody knocks and you go answer the door and there's somebody standing there and you have the whole conversation then you say goodbye and the person leaves and you close the door behind them that's very like linear and pat and laid out as opposed to suddenly you're in a room and people are in the middle of a conversation and you have to catch up it could be more interesting. So, I think there might be an element of like movie cuts to some of my pacing mm-hmm. where you pop into something and then you sort of scramble to catch up for a minute and then you understand where you are. It just keeps it more interesting. I think people have a tendency to read ahead in a way or think ahead.
0: Mm-hmm. So well, they're there. That's that's exactly I think one thing you do really well that when we're reading a mystery or, you know, in to the degree that this is a mystery or, or a, a crime piece of crime fiction, as readers, we're always thinking ahead. What's going to happen? Who? What's going on? And as a writer, you have to not only figure out yourself what's going ahead, but I, I'm presuming try to figure out where the readers are and make sure that your action hits that kind of sweet spot where it's both realistic, but the revelations come in a way that's, really fun to read and that's there's really uh some great examples of that in this book where you really hit that spot where we're just about ready to realize it and we then we read it yeah i mean that's what you try
1: to do and sometimes you hit it and sometimes you just miss slightly and you know it's um it's bad when you miss but it the the hard thing is it's a moving target because no two readers read something the same way Mm. One person's, you know, this is so slow. I know exactly what's going on is another person's like, I don't get it. I need more information. <laughs> so, you know, you have to sort of have a sense of, of taste for what you're doing. And then, you know, I'd rather err on the side of it moving too quickly or with less explanation. And then I just would trust my editor and a few of the early readers to say, you know, it would really help if you just made this more clear in this spot, because I think it's really hard to catch up with it here. Um, but, you know, th- there's another thing to wrestle with, too, which is the reader may be able to know something that's coming, and as the writer, obviously, I would know what's coming, but it doesn't mean that Frank Baer gets to be the smartest guy in the book every time, either. I mean, he <laughs> has to have his own pace that he's finding something out. Uh-huh. Otherwise, he wouldn't have any problems in life. He'd be walking around with all the answers. So sometimes the reader has to wait for him, and that can either be good frustration, in somebody's opinion or it could be irritating
0: well that's an interesting observation now um w- when you're uh writing this your prose is really really nice the the reading these books is just um there's kind of a super immediacy in in the mm-hmm. prose it's almost like you've gone through the book with uh you know like a razor and cut out every third <laughs> word or something you know to to make it really tight. And I'm wondering, do the books come out long and do they get trimmed down or do they come out small and get, you know, rounded out? Well, thanks very much
1: for that. I appreciate it. Um, They, they, um, I write them slightly, slightly longer, but I go over them many times before I even turn them over to my editor. So they're fairly close lengthwise. Um, You know, I guess from when I was a kid and I was in my writing classes and have I had Hemingway held up as an example of great economy and the way you need to do it and you got to take adjectives out and you, you know, you have to make it clean and lean and all that stuff. That's always been my sort of goal as to the right way to do it. And I don't know, maybe I'm just not that sophisticated. Maybe I just know like a straight ahead way to do it and... You know, I don't go about it like a David Foster Wallace. You know, who's he's amazing, but I could never write a book in that style. You know, he he says everything and then unpacks it and says it again from every angle, and in the whole way, it's entertaining. Um, for me, I just try to create as much ambiance as possible with as most of the time with as few words as possible.
0: Now, you write of a lot of screenplays. I'm guessing that for anything we've ever seen, there's probably 10 or 11 that we haven't, or parts of 10 <laughs> or 11. Is that a good... Well, I mean, that's
1: generally the way it goes. My batting average is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But uh, that said, there's probably... I'd say there's a good five mm-hmm. for for everyone that's been made. There's got to be five that didn't get
0: made. Now, I'd like you to talk about um, how your screenwriting informs your prose writing in terms of the creation, because you work with a partner... Uh, Brian Koppelman. Brian yeah. Koppelman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, going back and forth between, you know, the kind of collaborative efforts that are just to get the script out and the giant collaborative effort that a film itself is. Because when you're writing, you know you're writing for this, what's essentially like a large, not a small business, a large business right. to put together this this thing you've created. Yeah, it's a big
1: enterprise. Yeah, it's a big enterprise. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's super collaborative, you are going to end up working with dozens or a hundred or so people by the time your movie's done. So when I write a screenplay with with my writing partner, we just start the collaboration one beat earlier um, and we've been best friends since we were kids, so there's like a very natural um, ebb and flow to that relationship and a lot of screenplays are dialogue, so we're talking it out in the room a lot, and we're mapping out the uh, the story together and we we have the same references cinematically, so we kind of know the we're on the same page as far as the story we're going to tell. Um, you know, screenplays do need to read well. They need to be a good read. They need to carry the reader along, mm-hmm. because ultimately people read it first. But they don't need to be everything in a way. They need to, they need to point the way or to illustrate how everything is going to come later. The images, the tone. The sound, the the music, you just need to create this feeling of what it's going to be like when it's all there. When When you write a book, I mean, when I write a book, it's a completely solitary endeavor. I'm just alone in a room and I'm pretty aware that all I have are the words on the page to give the reader the full experience. First I have to keep them there reading it in the face of all the other forms of entertainment and art and diversion in the world today. And they're not going to get, you know, the full soundtrack and swelling music moment with the slow motion thing of the hero. It all has to be there on the page and in their head. So, um, you know, I I try to labor over it and make it as evocative as I can.
0: Well, I think that's one of the things that, you know, your books do particularly well, and I think that reading does particularly well, is that um – it's a collab reading too, reading and writing between you and your readers. It's a collaborative experience, and you have to right. give us enough to get there, and to so that as we read, we're putting in the swelling music, and we're right. we're putting in the slow motion moments. And you do a great job. I mean, boy, the beginning of this book is absolutely a, a, of. Um, uh, million pop is just absolutely knockout it just pulls you right in and it's just all of a sudden you're on a bullet train that's (laughs) literally (laughs) that's that's not going to end for the next uh 293 pages and if you don't have a chance if you don't uh if somebody brings you food you probably won't get up (laughs) (laughs) that's great to hear well so you know I think that uh that's one of the things that reading can do pretty well so talk about I mean it sounds like when you're doing the movies, you are really kind of doing kind of outline-type stuff to, to. – Before writing the script? Yeah, before yes. and, and Very detailed. Mm, okay. Um, and that might be
1: um, partially because I'm doing it with another person, so mm-hmm. we both need to know what we're doing instead of just <laughs> right. one of us having the whole playbook in our head.
0: Um, How does collaborate on a movie happen? I mean, do you guys um, – <clears throat> pass the script back and forth? Or is it, hot, I guess, hot typewriter?
1: Yeah, well, we have an office, and, and we work in there together, and we usually bring laptops for various stuff, but we have, like, one computer that we have the script on, and, and wow. you know, we'll, <laughs> one of us will be typing, and the other will be, like, sort of reading it and thinking about stuff and writing notes, and then, you know, ultimately, whoever did the first pass-through scene will hand over the keyboard, and the other guy will make changes. Um, but, uh but yeah, that's that's a very outlined process. And I think one of the reasons that we outline in such detail is you can, it's it's much better to spend a lot of time outlining and then write something that's closer to a finished version as opposed to writing five page scenes all over the place that you realize are gonna go out of the movie for story reasons and then you've spent all this time, you know, it's laziness. It's, mm-hmm. it's you don't wanna spend hours <laughs> writing like a perfect scene and then the whole reason for the scene disappears. Um, when, when I write the books, I would say I have an idea for the situation that bears in now that I'm in the second, third, fourth, and beyond books, um, you know, and I know he's my guy and what he's been through and where he's going. I know what situ- where he is on sort of his little, his little journey. And then I have an idea of the sort of crime that's going to be the centerpiece. And then I generally have about half a dozen or ten scenes in my head that are either big, big action moments, fights, um, sometimes big emotional moments, a big failure, a big success, sort of the things that are like the real accelerator moments. And I have that and then I do outlining to tie it together. And sometimes I have every scene tied together, but more often than not, the connective tissue that's part, an important part of a book isn't actually written in an outline. That comes later and i'll have these big pieces and i'll be like okay now i need to tie this together and then that's like sort of doing the fine work in a way
0: now one of the things i love are your action scenes your set pieces and your fight scenes in particular writing a fight scene that we can see is really an art that i think is highly not well understood and you understand it very well when you're writing these fight scenes do you enact them with yourself or yes, I hurt myself every day in the writing room I'm constantly asking, you know I guess I'm just like a
1: fight geek is mm-hmm. what it comes down to and and um, I, I guess I, I figure if I'm doing it I may as well do it with a lot of detail and specificity so
0: uh, you know it's just uh, well you know all the names of the holds and stuff do you, do you have to look those up or do you already know that from your no, own I basically market? know that stuff oh, okay. I mean
1: that you know I wouldn't want to use most stuff that would be so arcane that you would have to look it up is not something that um that would be used mm-hmm. so sure, sure I know most of the the names of the techniques and stuff like that, and i really i I have to hold myself back from throwing down a lot of extraneous stuff that would never <laughs> actually come to pass. <laughs> well, there's one thing I looked up I knew that that Wadi Dwyer was gonna do um a a judo sweep, and I had to look up the Japanese name for it. Mhm. You know, cuz I didn't I didn't have that at the ready. I knew the movie he was going to do, but I didn't know uh exactly what it was called.
0: Um, I, he's he and his friend are, are are really a lot of fun in a slightly scary way. And and you yeah. know, that's one thing that you do well is with your kind of your antagonists is you make them a pleasure to read even though they're kind of scary. I'm thinking of the family. We like that family, although we wouldn't want them living next door to us. Yeah, you know,
1: it's um, if you're going to introduce a bad guy, sometimes it works really well to just show him doing something horrible. And you just know right from the beginning you're with somebody who's just a complete fright. But I also like the technique of, like, sneaking up on people where you're getting a picture of a guy who may be seemingly – regular in some way or have something else on his mind, and then he casually does something really horrible. I mean, that's a good way to hook into somebody. Um, but you know, I think that, that people, even people who, who are missing that, that bit of moral socialization that keeps people from hurting each other, uh, you know, they, they're not missing it completely, and they're not missing it all the time. It just goes away sometimes when they do these acts. But other times they feel bad, or they think of their mom or their wife or something, and have a have a real conscience, and then suddenly it switches off when they want something else, and they they do
0: something terrible. You wrote the first book without, I without uh, a series being in mind, right? Although you left that open, did you? When you got, how far did you get into it? When you said, well, yeah. I was I was like, uh,
1: you know, I'd probably written. 50 pages I might not have even established that it was Indianapolis and I said oh you know if this ever turned into something he should be in a city where he could have a second case you mm-hmm. know I didn't want it to be you know some tiny town like maybe RFD where <laughs> nothing was ever going to happen again he'd be the most underemployed PI in the world but you know so yeah I, I I that that was sort of the nod to the future it was okay at least it'll be a big enough city where he could keep going
0: now but now you're uh 3 books into the series uh how much of a feel do you have for the arc or arc of this and you know the kind the type of series is this going to be a series where you have a real definite end in mind or is this a series of kind of standalone ever developing
1: well i don't have a definite end in mind like i don't know that like x number of books from now he's going to die or retire or something like that i mm-hmm. don't i don't have a definite end i have there three more in my head for sure. Oh good. W- one I'm working on and then two in my head that I could definitely do that that fit in his life. Mm-hmm. He's a character that he doesn't stay the same age, you know, he's it's been for the last 5 years or so, so he's aged those years. So at some point down the road, mm-hmm. he may not be sort of fit to continue in this kind of stuff. He'll mellow or stop or something, I suppose, but but for the near future, I, I have him being very busy and growing and changing in certain
0: ways. Well, I'm looking forward to, to reading that. Now, uh, could you talk about, um, do you know if there's any uh, interest in turning these into movies, or have you thought about this? You're a screenwriter, I would think you'd be, have Have you written the screenplay for the first one yet?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. Some, somebody approached me a while ago um, about buying the rights, and, and I turned it down because the plan was, and the plan is, that Brian and and I are writing a screenplay version of City of the Sun, mm-hmm. and we've written a draft. We we need to do some more work on it, but we plan on directing that movie within the next couple of years. Oh, we have one movie that we're a different movie that we're going to probably direct first, and then and well, then the idea would be to do that.
0: Well, can you talk about what you're going to do first? The next movie. Yeah. yeah. Well.
1: We, we made a deal with um, MGM to direct this movie called The Game based on the Neil Strauss book. Mm-hmm. Neil, it was a big bestseller a couple of years ago. Neil was a Rolling Stone writer who had a lot going for him, but he had horrible problems talking to women and really hadn't had relationships or, or any kind of sex, sexual contact and anything like that. And it was kind of really getting in the way of his life and his personal development. And then he was sent to profile this guy named Mystery who was like the world's greatest pickup artist, who had turned it into a science that he could teach. And Neil Strauss became an incredible student and became like the best at it in the world.
0: And it's the story of that journey. Boy, well, that's an interesting yeah, journey. That, well, you, you can't get more boy meets girl than <laughs> that. It's boy meets lots of girls <laughs> and then meets the right one and has to decide if he can turn it off. As a as a writer when you're going back and forth between these different modes I mean um, adapting somebody else's work uh, working on these collaborative projects then back into your ivory tower or your Connecticut <laughs> uh, little uh, studio where you, where you write, um, how much crosstalk do you find? you know do you find yourself dropping one and going to the other like in the middle of a project or you know the, saying oh my god I've got to write this scene for the novel
1: well, things stay pretty organized. You know, usually it's, it's one movie project at a time, and the books are a constant. You know, that's just something I try to work on every day. Oh, I, really? I, yeah. I mean, I fail at that, and days go by where I don't actually move the ball forward. But mm-hmm. generally, the program is that in the mornings, I write the books for, I, for a little while and then move on into the office and we work on the screenplay stuff. And then if I'm on a roll, I'll do some more in the afternoon or evening on the books. But sometimes I'm too burnt and I can't. Um you know, the nature of these things it's just they're a lot of work, they're long and and uh I don't think it would work well if I sort of like even if I cleared two months and I was just gonna do the book alone, I wouldn't be able to write enough pages per day to finish the thing, and it certainly wouldn't be of the quality I want, because I have to go over it and over it. That's just my style. I know that there's a lot of guys that can bang these things out. I know a lot of the big thriller writers write a book a year. For me, that's not realistic, because I'm making movies. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been like one every 18 months, or maybe close to two years on this one. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like the book has to come first before the timing. Um, And they just... If they're not ready, I can't turn them out and release them.
0: Well that's great. That's exactly what yeah. we want. We want the right <laughs> book, not just any book.
1: But you know, I appreciate like when people get hooked on a series, they want the next installment, mm-hmm. and that's a cool thing. But and and I you know, I'm in awe of guys that can write 20 books in 20 years and they're all good. I mean, well, that's a
0: real talent. Oh, yeah, well, well it is, but given uh, if you've got uh, 3 books and a 4th, I hope soon. Uh, then I'm a happy guy. (laughs) Well,
1: it's uh, it's in the works. Maybe soon is not the word I'd use, but (laughs) at some point
0: in the near future. I've been speaking with David Levine. His new book is A $13 Million Pop. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you.